I used to literally sit on the couch and feel sorry for myself and say, I'm never going to write anything again. And I'm just blah, blah. For the next 25 minutes or so, we're taking you inside the imagination of Eric Bogosian. You'll hear about how he became an actor, a playwright, a screenwriter, and also the author of a new nonfiction book about the plot to kill the man behind the Armenian genocide. You'll hear about his memories and the habits that shape his work, from talk radio and suburbia and Law and & Order and the new book, to whatever comes next. There are rumors about a new series on Netflix. From WLRN in Miami, I'm Alicia Zuckerman, and this is Spark, a podcast about imagination. What's the first creative thing that you can remember doing? I was a big drawing kid. I used to draw all the time, um, nonstop. Uh, which one of my sons is now? That's what he does for a living. He's a cartoonist. Um, I drew and drew and drew and drew and drew. Uh, in fact, I was just—I just said to my wife two days ago, "Why don't when we get home today, why don't we sit down at the kitchen table and get a bunch of pieces of paper and some crayons and let's just sit there and draw for a couple of hours?" Can you imagine? <laughs> but when you're a little kid, you know, it's what you do all afternoon, especially um, given the boring 1950s, 1960s life that I had. You had to keep yourself occupied. What did you draw? It all came to a peak in the seventh grade where in art class we were told to draw ourselves. And I did a self-portrait, the egomaniac that I was even then, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, I still have it. And the teacher said, uh, she actually at the PTA meeting said, you know, this boy, he should go to art school. And my parents came home and said to me, the teacher told us that you should go to art school, and you know, of course, that that's not possible. I mean, we don't, you know, we were pretty working class people, and the arts is just the most frivolous direction you could possibly go in your life. So it's very hard for me to encourage people to go into it because my father grew up in the Depression, and he talked about it a lot, and I was filled with real economic fear when I was a kid. And so the idea that you go into the arts means that you're going to be poor which in fact is what happened. I went into the arts and I was poor. But um, by that point, I had already been uh, inoculated with the, the, the hippie thoughts of my uh, teachers in college who were encouraging vast droves of young people to go into the arts in the 1970s. And we came all marching into New York thinking that we would be artists, not thinking about how that works exactly. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Woburn, Massachusetts, which is about 10 miles northwest of Boston. The town is noted for, of all things, pollution. They made a movie about it called A Civil Action with John Travolta many years ago. It's a big uh, sort of old uh, 19th century industrial town that had sort of fallen on hard times by the time I was growing up there. What did your parents do for a living? My dad is a was a guy who did the books at places. You could say accountant, but he wasn't a CPA. He was, you know, he added up their payroll. And my mom was a hairdresser. So did you end up going to art school? 
I ended high school being sort of the kid that everybody thought of as that's the actor kid. He's the guy who's always the lead in all the plays. But I knew that there was no chance I had a future as an actor. So I went off to the University of Chicago to be an English major. I figured that in that way I could at least learn to write and that would be sort of artsy. Uh, University of Chicago was a little bit over my head simply because I hadn't gone to prep school or I had actually never even written a paper before I went to college because I come from a kind of funny high school where you learn how to make license plates in preparation to your time in prison that you're going to be spending after you get out of high school. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) I went to Chicago, I learned a few things, and then I switched over to Oberlin. I figured if I get a BA in theater, even though I can't do anything with it, at least I get to do two more years of theater. So I did that. There was a, a vibe in the school of experimentation, but I didn't like my teachers. So I, um, I went to New York for a semester, and that was when I started to really see what was happening on stage in New York. While I was in New York, I had met some people at this funny little loft downtown called The Kitchen. I just wanted to live in New York. I didn't. I had no more pretensions to being an actor or anything or a professional in any way, but I just needed a job. And I said, could I like answer the phones for you or something? And they said yes, and, all, and I fell down the rabbit hole that was the Soho art scene of the late 70s and early 80s. And I was rubbing elbows with Nam June Pike and Phil Glass and Laurie Anderson, who's a little bit older than me. At the same time, a whole group of people like myself who were very turned on by punk rock and whatnot were coming up and making art Um, and these were my friends Robert Longo and Cindy Sherman and we were in the clubs every night for example I was at the first Sonic Youth concert that ever was because those guys came out of that crowd where was that first concert it was at Great Gildersleeves on the Bowery, which was a which was a biker bar at the time, and <laughs> and I remember us. We were standing in the back of the room, going, "Oh my God, they are so bad." I mean, the whole idea was to do bad things. There was the uh, at that time, teenage Jesus and the Jerks and Mars and all these other so-called no-wave bands who were making noise or were making something that was it was beyond punk. It was just insanity. And right around that exact same moment, hip-hop bopped into the scene. I was producing dance concerts at the kitchen. and Why dance? How'd you get into dance? I did dance classes as part of my training as an actor. In my own mind, I felt that I should always be physically be able to move, so I would just take classes with dancers. And then uh, I was invited to join a contact improv sort of open class one time. And they came by the kitchen and they saw the loft and they said can we do a concert here and i asked the boss and they said and he said yes and it was like a zillion people and so my boss said what was all that about i said dance is like happening this is 1977 new york 1976 77 and i said there's so much dance going on and he says well why don't you start doing concerts here and i started finding people like bilty jones or carol armitage melissa fenley those people were like my people Um, I want to go back to at what point did you decide I'm focusing on acting? I mean, even in high school, when you were starring in all the plays, like at what point did you start acting and who told you you were good at it? 
Well, a teacher basically passed around Romeo and Juliet one day and said, today we're doing theater, and you're going to read this part, and you're going to read this part. And I read uh, Capulet, who's Juliet's dad. I had never been to a play. I didn't know what plays were or what this was we were doing, but I wanted to do more of it. And uh, he said, well, there's a, there's a theater group here at the high school, and you can go and join them. So I went and joined them, and it had a huge impact on me. My the teacher who ran that, uh, Dorothy Welling, she had us all writing little plays and performing in our own plays. And, and it was love that was so deep and so painful because it, I wanted it so badly. I loved it so much. And what happened to me when I was on stage was different than any other creative enterprise. In fact, I didn't think of it as a creative thing. Like, there were no decisions. I just became other people. And I guess maybe because I was so uncomfortable with who I was as a person, um, it was incredibly relaxing and enjoyable to not be me for an hour or two. Then over time, it evolved into these other things, um, which involve writing as well. But what was it about not being, why didn't you want to be you? Like, what was it about you that made you uncomfortable during that time? Well, um, I was a problematic in some ways, child. I was very bright, but I had no social skills at all. In fact, today, I'm not even sure if there's some sort of uh, doctor who could analyze little Eric and come up with some diagnosis, and I don't know what that would be, but I'm sure they would have a medication for it. I had no idea how awkward I was. I was so awkward, and I didn't even know how awkward I was. At any rate, I had a very hard time being around little kids, and I, uh, first of all, I got in fights all the time, and I would have tantrums. I eventually made a decision to spend all my time by myself, and I did. And that was fine until uh, I got to junior high and there were these people there who I was very interested in, girls. And in order to spend time with girls, you had to learn how to act like a normal person. And I would literally take notes on how people behaved and I would try to behave the way that they did. And right around 16, I had finally sort of figured it out and eventually I began to integrate into the groups of kids who were having parties and going to dances and so forth. And unfortunately, right around that time, I discovered drugs. And I then, for the next 16 years, had a love affair with um, all kinds of drugs that were really bad for me. And then I, 30, over 30 years ago, I just stopped everything I had to. Um, what, were, what were your drugs of choice? Every drug was a drug of choice. I started um, in those days, that was the 60s, sort of. So uh, I guess it was, um, you know, LSD and, and marijuana were the mainstays. But soon I was in college, and in, in around that time, things were shifting gears into new drugs, uh, quaaludes, cocaine. And uh, by the time I had stopped, um, when I was 31, I was, um, and I don't like to talk about this because I don't want to in any way romanticize it, but I was um, an intravenous heroin user, and uh, not daily, but then again, that's kind of a stupid thing to say. Um, I think anybody who sticks a needle in their arm is nuts. Um, and fortunately, somebody, a friend of mine, got in touch with me and said, how, how are things going? Things were going very badly. I had already been signed by the William Morris Agency. I had already started to have some of my work produced, but I was spending all my time by myself, and I was inebriated a lot of that time, and my career was quickly sinking like a stone. And I was very unhappy. Uh, for me, um, drugs and alcohol are problematic because they prevent me from working, and I like to work. Um, I, I get a great deal of deep, tangible pleasure from working. And I had to get this millstone 
uh, off from around my neck. But I didn't understand that any of that was what was happening. I had no clue, like most people who are uh, alcoholic or drug addicted, that, that, that this is the problem in their life. But I had no choice by that point. I was so poor, I was so broke, I was so done that all I needed to do was get sober, and I did. Um, and then things started to happen very rapidly, very rapidly. Um, a month after I stopped drinking and drugging, which was the fall of 1984, I was here in Miami um, shooting Miami Vice, playing, of course, a drug dealer. Um, but things started to accelerate even faster. Um, two months after that, I did the first version of the play Talk Radio. And um, before I knew it, I had this movie being produced. I'm here to lead you by the hand through the dark forest of your own hatred and anger and humiliation. I'm providing a public service. You're so scared. You're like a little child under the covers. You're afraid of the boogeyman, but you can't live without him. Your fear, your own lives have become your entertainment. Next month, millions of people are going to be listening to this show and you have nothing to talk about. Marvelous technology is at our disposal. And instead of reaching up to new heights, we're trying to see how far down we can go. How deep into the muck we can immerse ourselves. What do you want to talk about, hmm? That movie and that whole thing was a great license to get even more work done, like the play Suburbia and Lincoln Center and, and books and everything. And But I have to kind of, um, I'm like a person who lives in the Garden of Eden and mustn't eat the apple. I just can't eat the apple. It was a very big part of my life. It was very destructive for me. I don't even think, they call it a disease, I call it a, a, a disability because when I get near alcohol or drugs, I can't function. And that's a problem for me because I can't say no. So I had to learn how to say no. So, I mean, in as far as that relates to creativity, it sounds like that robbed you of your ability to be a creative person if you couldn't work. Yeah. I mean, I thought that it aided my creativity. And um, I mean, one of the things I've learned now that I'm 62 years old is that you have a lot of energy when you're young. So if you look back and you say, oh, well, I was doing all this writing every single day and I was doing piles of cocaine, well, maybe you would have been doing all that writing every day anyway because at that age, at 28 or something, you're just brimming with stuff. Yeah, I, I thought that it aided my creativity. When I stopped, I thought it was stopping my creativity. I used to, I used to literally sit on the couch and feel sorry for myself and say, I'm never going to write anything again. And I'm just blah, blah. In fact, all the substantive work, pretty much most of it, has come since I got sober. How old were you when you stopped drinking and doing drugs? I was 31 when I stopped. I'm 62 now. So it's been exactly 31 years or half my half life. life. Yeah. yeah. Um, sobriety allowed me to access who I was in a more thorough way. Um, but that also changes because to some degree, maybe the things I write come out of a, a kind of an unbalance in myself. And as that balance is found, maybe because I'm getting older, maybe because I'm sober, maybe a lot of things, who knows? Like. I've been married for 10 years, so now I don't have to think about what would it be like to be married for 10 years, um, or what is it like to raise children, or anything like that. But I do really believe that there's always new ground. In other words, I'm not a brand. Like when I was doing monologue shows between 1980 and 2000, you know, I could just keep doing monologue shows forever, and you'd be watching my HBO specials. But once I had done 
them for 20 years, I felt that I had played it out. Um, I wrote some plays, and then I wrote fiction. At this point, we start talking about this play Bogosian did called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot at the Public Theater in New York. Philip Seymour Hoffman was the director. This uh, Stephen Adley Giergis play that you interviewed me about a few years ago. I hate um, to tell you it was 10 years ago, which I didn't realize until I looked <laughs> up the clips last night. And, and I want to say 10 years, uh, a lot can happen in 10 years. Now, when I did that play with Phil and Stephen 10 years ago, I didn't really think I had a future as an actor any longer. I simply wanted to participate because I'm a member of Labyrinth, and I wanted to watch... That's the Labyrinth Theater Company in New York. And I wanted to watch uh, Stephen and Phil work. The role that I was playing, Satan, was very small when we started, and I was just going to be a fly on the wall and just go to rehearsal. I just had, had really nothing else to do, actually, at that time. Instead, the role got very large. That role led to other roles for me. I ended up on Law & Order for four years. I ended up from that going on Broadway for a year. And and during all of that time and the money I earned, I was able to um, subsidize writing this history book, Operation Nemesis. Uh, the journey of the last 10 years is, it fascinates me if nobody else, just because I did not see any of this coming. This new, this nonfiction book, Operation Nemesis, started out as a movie and seven years later, after all kinds of research and whatnot, ends up being this book that I'm I'm very proud of. And when you say it started out as a movie, it started out as a screen, screenplay. You wanted to write it as a screenplay and it's about the assassination plot. It, the subtitle is The Assassination Plot That Avenged the Armenian Genocide. And you're Armenian, which is, or you're from, you're of Armenian heritage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had been asked by Armenians uh, when they would come to my shows or whatever, wherever I would encounter them, when are you going to write something about the Armenian experience or write something about the Armenian genocide? When I did the film with uh, Atamagoyan Ararat, I started to get stimulated into thinking about this in a more deep way than I ever had before. And then I learned about Sogaman Tetlerian, and he was a young man, an engineering student in Berlin who had assassinated Talat Pasha in 1921. Talat was the leader most seen as responsible for the Armenian genocide. And um, there was a big court case. Uh, it was publicized around the world, and Tetlerian was acquitted based on the notion that, hey, if you see your whole family massacred, and we're going to call it temporary insanity, and we're going to give you a pass. That was the story I was going to write into a into a film. That should take me about three months to write a screenplay, and that was that. Once I started researching this, and this is seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, um, when I started working on it, I discovered that, in fact, everything Tetlerian said in court was a fabrication. He wasn't an engineering student. He didn't just happen across Talat. He hadn't even seen his family be massacred. He was a trained assassin operating out of Boston, Massachusetts, and he was part of a very large conspiracy uh, of Armenians internationally to track down and kill the Turks responsible for the genocide. I want to get to, I want you to pick a moment. Like, you're if you can cut it all out what I just said. No, you are. no. You are because you stopped me, so you kind of have no, to cut it out. it's not true. <laughs> well, get, can we get another half an hour? No. <laughs> we didn't have more time because we were at the Miami Book Fair and he had to get to his talk. But the thing I wanted to make sure to ask him about was finding his way to a particular creative moment. 
a spark. I think that very often focusing too hard on an issue might not lead me in the right way. And so the and you're talking I, about like finding creativity well, in, in all in all aspects. It, it's a very wrong way to go at things as opposed to taking time, walking around, reading a million books. I took a year off one time and just read every book I could read and let things filter in and say, what is the thing that I don't understand? Where is the point where I'm most curious and how is it going to evolve? As far as an aha moment, there was definitely one when I was writing talk radio because I basically I had a guy who was kind of a dick who was uh, who was who was answering calls and being very difficult with everybody, and that was working on a, on a moment to moment level. And that was the character you're talking about. That was the character, yeah, Barry Champlain. But I didn't have the. It didn't help my plot. It wasn't like a plotted thing. It was just like call after call after call after call after call. And one day, um, by the way, he was not based on Howard Stern. He predates Howard Stern, um, no matter what Howard Stern says. But uh, <laughs> Does Howard Stern take credit for talk radio? Well, he, he used to give me a lot of crap about it on the air. And anyway, that's a whole other chapter. Um, so, But I didn't have a plot. And in order to un to unravel how the plot should proceed, it was very important for me to go back to the theme of what it was I thought I was making this about. And actually, I was making this movie or the play originally about John Belushi. I was uh, John Belushi. I related to because he had he had really knocked himself out to get a lot of attention, and he had died. And I related to what he was doing because I was doing very intense performances on stage around that time, and I realized the audience were pretty much encourage me to go, I mean, if I, took, if I walked out on stage and poured gasoline on my head and lit a match, it would make them very happy. And I was like, this, what is, how far could this go? And so I switched gears out of a stand-up to a talk radio guy, just because the, the format worked better for the drama. And then I had him doing this. This guy would say anything, do anything to get his, to get more people listening. Anyway, the aha moment for me was, I said, okay, what happens if one of his biggest fans comes into the studio and he interviews his fan and he realizes that the people that he's trying to get to listen to him and love him are moronic. And then he comes to this moment where he suddenly sees, and that's my favorite moment in the movie, is not when I'm talking, but when I'm listening to Michael Wincott as the as the guest, who's this crazy kid, and there's this expression on, on my face as I listen to this kid basically parrot the sort of things that I had been saying on the air, and now I realize how horrible they are, and this is me. This is my this is my Frankenstein. And, and, and you, as you as the character right. you're talking about. Yes, and so once I had that straight, the whole rest of the play fit together. How did you get there? How did you get to that moment where you figured that out? I'm big on walking. I do believe in sort of a subconscious of finding it. Do you have any recollection of like, being in a certain place or anything like that, or, <laughs> I, or what you were doing before. Because I, I am so aware that it was a, that it was an aha moment that I have this image of myself in a bathtub, which is absurd. Because <laughs> I, I don't think I was in a bathtub, but uh, uh, it's a good I, story. I, yes, I remember the vibe. I remember that it had been bugging me that I couldn't figure it out. I can't say I know exactly when the moment was. I remember that I was very happy. I have found that pieces either open up 
or they close up. If I'm starting with a mistaken idea, and I'll go pretty far. I mean, I might write an entire pass on a play or a, or a screenplay, and it and it, and it and it just doesn't work. It keeps closing. It keeps you find all these dead ends and and problems. On the other hand, when it's a good idea and it's working, which has happened maybe twice for me, it keeps opening. New potentialities keep arising. New scenes, new characters, new moments keep kind of just showing up, and there they are. Um, the garden gnome in suburbia. <laughs> no. No, put back the leprechaun. Yeah, put it back. The story of the garden gnome is so cool because what happened was we the play was pretty much done and we were in rehearsals and Lincoln Center was getting ready to design a poster. So they said, what would you like to have for a poster? I said, well, I love this guy Kozik who does all these punk posters out on the West Coast, Nirvana, all these day glow silk screens. So they call up uh, Kozik and he says, sure, he'll do it. And he does a pass. He goes, what do you want? Well, I want a slice of pizza and I want a um, handgun and I want maybe a pack of cigarettes or something other thing. So he does all that. We get the we get the first draft of the poster and all those things are there, but there's a garden gnome in the corner. So we we make the we start making the postcard. The postcard arrives at a friend of mine's house who's my stage manager on another show and she looks at it, she goes, What's that in the corner? I said, It's a garden gnome. She said, Is there a garden gnome in the play? And I said, No <laughs> but there will be. And that was how the garden gnome ended up in and, and, and by the time you get to the movie version of Suburbia, the Garden Gnome becomes even a bigger issue. Go! What are you, what are you doing, you idiot? Come on, open the damn door! He drives around in a limo with them, and Steve Zahn keeps endlessly focusing on this Garden Gnome. That's, that really is a great story. Um, so it sounds like the work tells you when it's working. Yeah, I totally believe that there are a lot of things going on that are not in my control, my own subconscious. Uh, to, to think that I can just by will create things is probably going to make pretty uninteresting art. For example, my early stuff was seen as extremely angry, and it was. I was very attracted to the punk scene. I was extremely angry. Maybe it just happened that a very angry guy showed up on the scene at the time when people wanted to see angry stuff, and that helped propel my career at the time. I don't know. I, 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 it isn't like I can make a decision and say this is going to make things move forward. Instead, I kind of just have a dance with my own work. And my only concern, it was always there, was I wanted to be able to make enough money to be able to live. And that has happened. So I want to keep screwing around. I want to keep playing around and find out what happens next. You're a playwright. You know that's a great ending. A good ending, but not quite the end yet. Imagine if you weren't an artist. If I wasn't an artist, I would be an unhappy insurance agent. But I would have a lot of money. And then I guess I would buy art or something like that. Something horrible. <laughs> Eric Bogosian, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to a conversation with the writer and actor Eric Bogosian. Spark is a podcast about imagination produced out of WLRN in Miami, Florida. To hear more, search WLRN Spark in your podcast app. Spark is a creation of Tom Hudson, Maria Muriel, and me, Alicia Zuckerman. 